The big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. How are you, Chris? I am great, thank you. How are you? Good. Should we? Uh, I don't actually have a, a anybody planned or anything planned. Should we just start in some way? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I don't know. Should we? What should we do, Neil Modi? <laughs> Maybe this is the intro. Chad, use this as the intro. <laughs> Chad, Chad, Chad. Yes, thank you, Chad. You've got a lot of cleanup work to do for us. You must be <laughs> So, um, I reached out to my friend Gary Tyler, just as a kind of um, housekeeping okay. matter. And um, he's excited to do something with us if we want to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, Gary Tyler's the one who, uh, the one who, uh, Mr. Forgiveness, is that right? Yes, correct. He's the youngest, um, American sentenced to death, 16 years old, 1974. And he served 42 years in Angola State Penitentiary in Louisiana for a crime he didn't commit. And he got out last April and, um, Moved out of Louisiana. <laughs> yeah, well, can you blame but, him? Uh, lives here. Yeah, no, I can't blame him at all. But he's doing fine. He lives out here. He's been volunteering and and writing his story and you know doing a lot of different things. But his his great. Uh, he's really an angel, man. I'm telling you, when you meet that fellow, you know you're in the presence of someone special, given what he's been through. So, so um, yeah, he's he's. So yeah. why don't you bring him for next Monday? Can you, you think you can do that? Um, I'm, yeah, I'll see if I can get him on the calendar. He volunteers during the weekdays at a um, homeless shelter for youth in Venice, California. So, um, you know, he went to prison so young at 16, he never learned how to drive. So he takes the bus and the train out to the west side from Pasadena to Venice. So that's like two hours each day, each way. Oh, wow. And. Yeah, so he's not home until like seven at night usually. Seven in the morning till seven at night. Wow. Well, I'm happy to go later. Yeah. It just sounds like sounds like a guy you want to hug, like you yeah. said. Yeah, yeah, he's great. So we'll figure out um, a timing or schedule that works. I'll figure out with him when when he could be sort of interviewed or part of the podcast. So. And then last housekeeping notes: um, you should meet my in-laws if you're going to Mumbai too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm flying in and out of Delhi, and I sent an email to your guru, Sandeep G. Yeah, you you typically, um, well, you're not a trend trader, so it'll be fun for you to talk to um, such a technical ten, trend trader. He's a lawyer by profession. Um, uh huh. Who who works on customs brokerage, customs um, not brokerage, paperwork, clearance for a number of companies. For I think just two or three, and then he counsels people, um, and he, you know, as a spiritual counselor, and then he trades the markets. So, wow, it's like quite a quite an interesting and diverse background, and and a heart of gold. So you'll really enjoy him. Yeah, a, an attorney with a heart of gold. Yeah, I'm telling you, he's not. He's wired differently. <laughs> hey, 
Hey, wasn't my boy Gandhi an attorney too? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. You're correct. You are correct. Yeah, I'm going to go to his house. I went to the museum in Delhi. You've been, huh? So I went to his house. I don't think it's his home, though, is it? No, I went to his house in Gujarat, not to the place in Gujarat. Right, Gujarat is where his house is, yeah. Yeah, it certainly yeah, made me think differently the, about the Burj Khalifa, right? So you go I, to, you I go think to Burj the, the museum. The museum is like the the civil rights museum. It's where he was killed, right? Oh, I don't know. Murdered? Yeah, in Delhi. Yeah, but you know, I went to the. I, I was trying to tell you, I went to the Burj Khalifa days before. I think you, I told you this story, right? I went to the Burj Khalifa days before, wondering is is this how a human being should leave a mark on the world? Is this what significance is at the highest level? And then I went to his house, which was like nothing. And I was like, this right. is the way a human should be living, leaving significance in the world or living significance in the world. Well, you know, Neil, I had this experience, too. I just last weekend, you know, we um, did not have our scheduled podcast because I was cleaning out my mom and dad's house. And um, I had that same sort of um, insight. You know, I mean, I was... <laughs> discarding the relics of my mom and dad's past and my father and my mother were both accomplished my mother was you know louisiana nurse of the year for five different years and we're throwing these trophies away and all of these monuments to the past right (laughs) um and a lot of people i think especially those who have power and wealth and fame tend to build pyramids to themselves and it's a rare individual who doesn't and it is a graceful way to live unencumbered because then you're not leaving all that stuff for your people to clean up <laughs> and you're able to move forward more effortlessly. I think what Dr. Cooper talks about polishing the past is very real. Sometimes all those mementos, those monuments we build to ourselves, even if it's a, a gorgeous mansion or whatever, it, uh, a big company headquarters, whatever it is that we can justify um, still, um, in a sense, can block us. It's so. interesting. After meeting him, I never really cared about uh, keeping any of that stuff again. <laughs> I kept it to some degree, but I don't know where any of it is anymore. Anything I get, you know, I don't, I don't yeah. have very many of them as a result of meeting Robert Cooper. Just having him say the statement once, I was like, that makes sense. Why do I need to focus? Yeah, on the I did past? too. I, I, I had, uh, I didn't have a big one, but I had a little ego wall, you know, with my. Um, degrees, <laughs> you know, a picture of my master's degree and the, you know, all these little, uh, uh, these accomplishments, but they're all in the past and to have them framed and frozen and, you know, um, it's, I, I, once he said that, I cleaned that wall off. The <laughs> <laughs> same them. effect, right? You heard it once and you didn't need to hear it again. <laughs> Didn't need to hear it again. I was like, oh gosh, I can take all these down. Maybe put up a nice picture of my wife or my dog. Yeah, I was going to say your son. <laughs> Something. What about your son? Something that brings a smile. Yeah. <laughs> Today's February 5th, for those of yeah. you who don't know. And the market, what, fell another 1,000 points today? Yeah, we had another big swoon today um, in the market. So the air is coming out of the market, so down 4%. 4.2% on the S&P so, just today. So. Are you ready to predict the, the crash of the market? 
Well, I do believe there will be um, a rally, um, and that's the telling point. You know, when the market bounces back, um, is it able to do so with vigor and enthusiasm, and is it able to break through some of the previous resistance that we've seen? Um, you know, I have felt for many years, actually since 2014, that the majority of the market, as measured, is um, in really uncharted territory as far as valuation is concerned. So from some measures like price to sales, uh, price to book value, the stock market is extremely highly valued, uh, richly priced. So even after these um, few days of declines, um, still the market is in, in rich territory. So I would have to say that from a standpoint of being prudent, we should expect more downside. The question is when. <laughs> How is it um, revealed to us? Uh, is it all of a sudden? Is this really it? Um, or is there some recovery? The markets never go sideways, though. So people argue, oh, well, the economy will catch up to the valuations. But, yeah, it will, usually with the stocks going down, <laughs> catching down to the economic reality rather than the economic reality catching up to stocks. And I think that's part of what we're seeing, So, even so, though the financial well, news is better. You know, so I live in Seattle, right, and everybody always talks about the Amazon stock price, you know, here. You hear about Microsoft, mm -hmm. Amazon, Boeing. Those are the stock prices you hear most about Starbucks. Um, but obviously yeah. Amazon's pretty unique, <laughs> being fairly high <laughs> with, with their feet. Oh, right, what right, gravity-defying. Gravity-defying, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> when will gravity come back for, for Mr. Bezos? Do you have a prediction on this one? <laughs> on when the when the comeuppance will happen for Mr. Bezos? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Gosh, well, he had, a, you know, along with the NASDAQ in 1999-2000, a huge crash in the stock price, um, I think over 80% then, and then over a 71% drop in the stock price in the 2008 crash. But since then, it's been no looking back. Invincible. And stock has been on a yeah. tear. Yeah. So you think during the next crash? That's what I hear you saying? Oh, well, it's, it's that it's, you know, the stock is just absurdly priced. And again, I want to say overvaluation alone um, can exist for a long time. It's not a sufficient cause for a correction, but it does create the, the um, backdrop where the downside risk is much greater than any further upside. So when I look at an Amazon, you know, it's at 70 times book value, 69, 70 times book value. Um, it's extraordinary. And, you know, the, the argument has always been that once they turn off the capital uh, expansion, turn off the, you know, CapEx spending, and start to return money to shareholders, it's going to be a huge win. Free cash flow is so great, but they just keep spending it on new fulfillment centers and on Whole Foods and on expansion, expansion, right. expansion. But I don't know that that's, that, that um, will ever happen. <laughs> I don't know that they'll ever stop the capital expenditure um, and the, the attempt to dominate different consumer markets. And then at the end of the day, I don't know what a real... What what's the difference between an online Amazon? Maybe there's a slight premium, 
um, and, and an online Macy's or Walmart or other retailer, you know? So I don't know how durable their competitive advantage is, is really the question I'm asking, for such a high, high price. So there is a, a correction coming. I mean, Jeff Bezos will still be super rich. <laughs> Amazon <laughs> is a wonderful company. It's just not a wonderful investment, you know, at these prices. So, All, all my friends but who work there, employees, um, are very happy right now, though. I have to tell you that. They're happy about the stock price, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> are they happy to work there? Is the work fulfilling? Uh, a couple of them, yeah. A couple of them really like it. Um, because of the challenge, you know, I never really asked the other person, but I think he'd be happy with wherever he was if it was hard work. Um, uh-huh. it, it, for most of the people I know at Amazon, it's really just about the challenge. I, I think if the challenge got to be uh, too many hours for too many months or too many years in a row, you know, obviously they wouldn't stay, but they'd probably just move departments first. Pretty remarkable. So have you, have you sold all your Bitcoin yet? I have um, not much. But just as an experiment, some Litecoin and yeah. some Ripple, and I, and I have sold those. I, I didn't buy any Ether. I didn't buy Bitcoin. I'm actually um, very surprised to hear that you're a crypto, you were a previous cryptocurrency owner. I would have bet only, <laughs> only have bet you'd never very, get that. Um, Even for $50, yeah, I would not, have bet you would never get there. <laughs> not meaningful amounts, but just to, to learn, you know, what's happening with the exchanges. You know, of course, there's a tremendous amount of financial fraud, and I do think that these are the, the tulips of our time. And, you know, all of these speculative markets have a very real tendency. Um, I think McKenzie and Associates, the consulting firm, or was it the Gartner Group? Huh. One of those um, consulting-type firms outlined the map of technology adoption, and you've probably seen it. You know, yeah. there's the yeah. I think I might have said the you, innovation. The last one, I think, it was the Gartner. Right. Yeah. Innovation. It goes way, way up, and there's a tremendous amount of hype, and then there's a sell-off, and they call that the trough of disillusionment. Yep. Yep. <laughs> when people think that the you know original hyperbole won't be met, and there's a sell-off and a natural correction because the 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 speculation gets out of hand, and then there's a real adoption of the technology. Um, and I think we're getting to the trough of disillusionment with the cryptocurrencies. But those, you know, always, even with tech stocks in the dot-com era, um, are almost always met with a 90% decline. Um, and the corrections aren't complete until then. You know, the NASDAQ fell 89 or 90% in uh, the year 2000, 2001, um, and bottomed out. Uh, the same is true of the South Sea bubble. The, um, I'm not familiar the with the South Sea bubble at all. South Sea bubble even caught my favorite um, scientist, Sir Isaac Newton, unawares. <laughs> he even commented, I can calculate the movement of heavenly bodies, but not of human souls. <laughs> of the emotion because he was so the the South Sea and Mississippi scheme were very much related um, the South Sea bubble um, was a stock company as they called it back then a joint stock company that was formed to take over the debts of Great Britain 
following the Napoleonic Wars. So the British government had this huge amount of debt. And basically, the South Sea Company was kind of like a trading group, and they promised to you know, find gold and silver and all this other stuff. And they took the, the debts of the, of the crown and converted them into this equity company. And then there was a huge amount of speculation in that. And um, the bubble burst in 1721. It had a few cycles. Sir Isaac Newton, for his part, got in early and got out with a nice profit. But then he continued to watch his fellows get wealthy. And even though he thought it was a, a Ponzi scheme, he re-enrolled and put his money back in just in time to lose it all. And that's when he suffered the trough of disillusionment and wrote that comment. <laughs> and he did indeed, you know. That's a funny thing for sure. Um, yeah, discover just his powers of observation were so great. But he couldn't fight the emotions of the crowd, which, you know, I think we're dealing with now too. There's been a tremendous, tremendous and consistent run-up in the, the stock market index averages. And it's created this idea that the, the markets won't ever correct or can't fall or that the Fed somehow is now omnipotent and won't allow a correction to occur. But um, this will surely, surely be tested now. I mean, we have not had a 5% correction in the market until now. It's been something like a year and a half without a 5% correction. Gosh, I don't think we've gone a year without a 5% correction since the 1920s. But I'll have to check my statistics. I just know it's been a really long time. Yeah. What happens here? You have to check the veracity of these numbers. Uh, <laughs> but I just know that the current frame is certainly anomalous. It's not a. It's a very abnormal um, series of returns we've received. So we absolutely should be prepared for and expect a correction. Well, what do you, what, um, what's keeping you up most at night about the market right now? If you were a guy who who did react to the market, what would be keeping you up? Yeah, the, the markets to watch always are the credit markets. The bond markets, credit markets are much larger than the, than the global stock markets. Governments borrow more, people borrow more, corporations borrow more typically than they save. <laughs> and all those IOUs, those bonds, those promises to pay, those financial instruments are traded in a very rich and liquid market. And um, that the bond markets, the credit markets, usually figure out or discern economic problems much more quickly than the stock markets, equity markets do. So the direction of interest rates is one of the things that I'm really paying attention to. I don't think, um, I, this is my opinion. Um, no, go ahead and say the, it as fact. <laughs> I don't think the economy... <laughs> I don't think the economy can sustain higher interest rates. Though the Fed is determined to raise interest rates, I almost think they're doing it so that they have room to lower them again if and when the crisis happens. They're trying to create um, some maneuverability. You know, By this I mean they raise rates and the market starts to tumble, and then they come back and lower them again to look like they've done something useful. But I think the economy cannot sustain higher interest rates, even though the 10-year Treasury could go to 3%, I think that would quickly deflate because the credit markets are just 
really too large, it would be too painful for the economy to sustain higher interest rates for a very long time. And um, it could lead to the collapse of governments, etc. So I, I just think that um, economies too weak around the globe, most of them, to sustain higher interest rates so that even if interest rates do spike or pick up a little, they'll eventually come back down. What keeps me awake at night is thinking that if I'm right, but the actions of the central banks, which I cannot judge, they come back to the markets with a ton of new credit. Could we see hyperinflation like Zimbabwe or could we see runaway <laughs> Our money's not as beautiful. interest rates? Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just don't know. So there's kind of two ways it could go. I think that that probability is lower, but it's still not um, outside of the realm of possibility. It's not de minimis. It's significant. We could go the way of a, a sort of Latin American style hyperinflation, or we could see this thing deflate, which would be the natural corrective process. And in the one, on the one hand, interest rates remaining low or falling again would be very bullish for bonds, um, probably also for some hard assets and commodities. Um, on the other hand, if interest rates spike, of course, that would be terrible for bonds, but still probably good for commodities, <laughs> hard assets, things like that. So in both of those cases, the hard assets and commodities seem to be um, a worthwhile uh, area for investment. And they're also at the lowest price relative to the stock market that we've seen. So if you look at the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, Vis-a-vis -vis the S&P 500, for example, commodity prices are lower than they've been at any time going back to the 1970s. And there have been three bull markets for commodities since that in those last 50 years, um, almost 50 years. And um, at this point, the price of commodities measured by the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index is the lowest it's ever been relative to the S&P 500. So that's correcting now because stock prices are coming down. But if you look, you'll see oil prices have been stable and up. Um, they've actually doubled since uh, the last 16 months or whatever. Um, gold prices are up. Um, but those things aren't making the news, of course. The news is all the disaster that is the S&P for the last few days anyway. <laughs> so kind of how this thing will uh, unfold with regard to the Fed and the central bank's response. That's really it. Is 2018 potentially, you know, that same moment where you're, you're almost on the edge of your seat every day, you know, needing to meditate even more, um, reading even more material, feeling more calls from um, the folks you manage money for, and then, you know, finally you get your payday and get a chance to, to breathe for a minute? Yeah, I, um, I think, yes, it's shaping up that way. Because no matter how um, this unfolds, there is a tremendous amount of volatility. And the volatility, volatility just means, of course, um, price movement per unit of time. But when we speak of volatility, it really is a euphemism for falling markets <laughs> in finance. Volatility can be good if the price of something is going up. 
and that price movement per unit of time is something going up every day <laughs> instead of going down every day. But too often, and I think almost all the time, when um, market commentators say volatility, they mean falling markets. But um, I do think that this volatility has awakened a lot of people who were um, in a slumber or complacent. And I do think that it's especially awakened the Treasury markets if we see something like we did in 2011, before the Fed became very, very active, um, and I get a sense that that could replay, the interest rates back in 2011 um, continued to rise very slowly. Um, and then they got to a point where the economy just could not sustain those higher interest rates. And we're talking about incremental changes, but they're big in terms of the, the interest rates that prevailed then. So back in 2011, I think the 30-year Treasury was at 4.8%, um, and it rose back to almost 5% and then collapsed, um, back toward 38 3.5%. And that was a huge run-up in the bond price. So we captured that bond rally for our clients, um, while most people were still suffering through and praying for a stock market rally. Something like that, I think, again, could unfold. If we reach 3% on the 10-year Treasury, so these numbers um, in terms of the interest rate backdrop are lower, but even more meaningful, because if interest rates reach 3% on the 10-year and then fall back to 2 that's a full one-third of the interest rate that's gone, right? That falls back. It's, a, it's um, a term called convexity, where the lower the interest rate, you know, the more meaningful any small moves are. So I think we're at a point where if interest rates punch through 3% on the 10-year, then it's off to the races on the upside, most likely. But if they reach 3% or very close to it and then interest rates roll over, we'll see a deflationary bounce in bonds, and that could be very beneficial to our clients. So we're trying to position ourselves in a way where we're watching carefully for either of those two scenarios to be realized. And again, um, we do like the commodity space. Um, just oh, you have from, for a while. Uh, yeah, I have for a while. I've suffered through it from 13, um, well, the end of 2013 and 14, but 15 was a pickup, 16 uneven, 17 we saw a little pickup. Um, so there's a nice base that's been established for commodities prices. And I just, again, think that, you know, some of the, the prices for financials and technology stocks are extraordinarily high relative to the cash flow, relative to some of the valuation metrics, book value, especially sales. Price to sales for the stock market is higher than even 1929, um, higher than 1999, um, dot-com era. So we're really in rarefied air in terms of the stock market's valuation. So we should be mindful of the downside. No matter what your position is, um, some measures should be taken to protect oneself from that downside, um, either through diversification, hedging, some, some strategy to just give yourself a little comfort and peace. I'm wondering what you must be thinking about <laughs> the market I'm in, which is not quite nearly as volatile as the public market. The venture capital world, the VC and private equity world that's developed, 
um, over the last 20 years or so outside of the public markets is its own ecosystem. There'll still be panic in our markets, right? During the um, yeah. last couple of corrections, we definitely saw some companies start start stopping investing. Um, some continued with their strategy. Those were the ones that have done the best because they're able to, to dollar cost average still against their, their winners and losers. You had a lot of investors yeah. coming out and saying, be fearful, fearful of the wave, spend less. Um, when you know Silicon Valley is typically taken is thought about as uh, bloated companies because you know companies like Google provided uh, lunch and breakfast for a long time to their employees, um, even when they were startups. And of course, startups are all kind of feeding in on the same company, uh, or sorry, on the same employee pool. So they're they're adding all the perks they possibly right. can to to hire those folks. Um, but I think we're still going to see panic even in our field, even though we're maybe more of an adolescent. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, there's always contagion. You're right. And so, you know, someone might get a margin call on their Amazon stock, and then they've got to pull <laughs> from their private equity or venture capital offering. To, <laughs> you know, it all can be related when it's uh, money. It's very fungible. And even a you know a credit wave or an impulse from China can affect asset markets here. So since they all are asset and investment markets, they're certainly um, correlated to some extent. But I do think that um, you know the the financial markets, especially the the public markets, have become a tool of public policy. You know, not just Donald Trump tweeting how great the market is and how that's a reflection of his presidency. <laughs> but from and you know he's taking a page literally from the Fed, which their sole measure of success has been that asset prices haven't flagged. So they're they're promising that somehow these high asset prices will trickle down and generate some wealth to the whole economy. But if it's simply asset inflation, that's not real wealth. I mean, my. Neil, this is maybe the time to go into it on this podcast, but I could go on for hours about the ridiculous sophistry of the Federal Reserve and the central banks generally. But let's face it, they're political institutions, not real bankers. So their rationalizations for their behavior aren't always true. <laughs> we would call it... You know, what is it, Fed talking points? We call them lies in any other setting. But when it's political, it's policy speech. And um, Fed policy, of course, has always been meant to support, intervene and support the market. That helps their, their banking constituents, and it helps their face in front of Congress. Um, and, of course, the government loves it when the markets are going up because they can boast, as our president is not shy about doing, um, as how that reflects wonderfully in the economy. No, not our growth. president. Our, well, even Obama did. To, you know, <laughs> he took credit in the State of the Union that the markets had recovered. And, I mean, he inherited a mess. And I'm sure he wanted to see the Dow Jones average and the S&P go up. But the, the truth is um, there's uh, a healthy and necessary job that corrections do. <laughs> they clear out um, the overexpansion, the, the misallocation of capital, 
um, and the, the 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 correction, the job of a correction, if I can anthropomorphize this thing, is that they're there to be the cleanup, to get rid of all the stuff that's not working, the structures that uh, aren't rational, and to reallocate capital to more and better uses. And that's not been allowed to happen. Instead, we've piled more debt on top of what was a debt crisis in order to sort of paper over it. And that's where I think the real question that keeps me up at night at the core is, is this it? Is this now the point where the credit expansion finally rolls over into a credit contraction? Is it? We've had 80 years of a credit expansion, almost, <laughs> from 1946 to now, with a couple of dips. That's a long run. For anything. Yeah, that's a For long anything. Run. And, you know, most times the um, Kondratiev, Nikolai Kondratiev, who was a Russian mathematician, we've talked about him before, but he postulated these super cycles. And he said he wasn't um, postulating, that he was just observing. And in his observation, he said that there are these long waves of expansion that last from 60 to 80 years. And then there are short contraction waves, which last between 15 and 30 years, typically. So we have a long expansion and then a short contraction. And um, originally, he observed that these were tied to agricultural cycles because all business was based on, you know, that was the big mover, agriculture. That's what trade was back in the uh, pre-industrial era. And so there would be these long expansions and um, higher yields, and then all of a sudden a drought or some peak in um, yields or harvests, and then some decline, and then the cycle would go. Um, Interestingly, once we moved to industry, that cycle was the same with credit. The credit expansions lasted, and probably because they were originally based on agriculture too, you know, when the cotton yields booming and sugarcane is high, then we have more credit available than when there's a drought or a contraction in harvests. But that cycle, again, he witnessed of credit expansion and then contraction lasting 60 to 80 years on the expansion and then 15 to 30 years on the contraction. Um, we've had even a longer credit expansion than normal, more than three generations in this case. So it's really interesting to see how this resolves itself. Um, you would have thought we had several warning signs. The dot-com era was really a credit-fueled boom that went bust, and we had another one that we replaced it with in the housing bubble. That was a credit fuel boom, and the credits we were creating were ridiculous, <laughs> like negative amortization loans and stated income loans and anything just to keep building the credit. Now we have negative yielding sovereign debt from, you know, $10 trillion of it um, around the world from governments like Switzerland and Germany that have bonds which, you know, you're paying a privilege to hold them. You pay those governments for the privilege of giving them your money to hold. It's a very strange concept. But just when I thought 
that the credit expansion couldn't go further. <laughs> we have even a corporate bond from Nestle in Switzerland that's a 10-year bond with a negative interest rate. So you give Nestle your money, and then you pay them a fee to hold it because you're not getting any interest. You're paying them. That's a great business. I want to borrow money from people and have them pay me to hold it for them. What a great business. Is this an announcement of right. what's to come? <laughs> I don't know how I can, I can sell that. I can see Nestle because the government of Switzerland is a little nutty as well. You know that the Swiss National Bank, it's the great irony of our time. Switzerland was the last bank, central bank, to go off the gold standard and to not back up their currency with gold. And it's, it, they bought the farm. They went all in. Their bank, central bank, started to print Swiss francs like crazy, arguing that they had to keep up with the expansion of the money supply in the eurozone. So, um, but for a small country like Switzerland, it meant a massive money printing to try to keep up with the amount of new credit that was being created by the European Central Bank. But they started to buy stocks directly. One of the largest owners of Apple is um, the Swiss National Bank. They're oh, interesting. I did not know investor. that. Do you see a tightening or do you see any changes in the landscape? It's not obvious to me that there's a tightening. I do think that, obviously, there will be a restrictive, um, I don't know, harness or belt put on the market as more funds start to open up and as the you know credit market starts to contract. And there is some panic, obviously, that will trickle down, I think, to, to every asset class, um, even if the asset class can hold strong. Um, so... You know, one of the weirdest things that we're seeing and maybe really clever things we're seeing is, you know, I read all of the news, probably all of the VCs read every day. Um, and we keep hearing all this news about SoftBank's vision fund. And they're helping companies right. stay uh, private much longer. So typically when you built a company to a certain level, at some point you would want to give investors and employees and, and founders relief by going to the public markets and, and selling stock in that company. And now because, you know, because of the vision fund, even companies that are much further along are able to get further and further capital um, to maybe stay away from being public longer. So I don't actually know how that'll affect the overall market. I don't know how that'll affect the venture capital world. It's something that, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a very fascinating thing because especially since everybody wants to read about it clearly, or at least the writers want to write about it uh, on such a frequent basis. And I guess with a $100 billion fund, you know, they're going to have regular impact on all sorts of things we're seeing. I'm not... Right. Seeing that really translate to how um, angel investors are are changing their thesis or how seed funds are are changing their thesis, but it's something I, I, I wonder about a little bit. It's something that I'm paying attention to. It's not keeping me up at all. Um, in fact, I kind of laugh a little bit like, oh, they're giving money to mm -hmm. somebody else. Oh, they're giving money to somebody mm -hmm. else. The company can stay uh, public or private much longer. Um, 
I think the cycle for every company is a little different. Obviously, there are certain revenue goals. That vision fund, um, with a little more time, could churn the market. Um, obviously, it's a, a sign of maturity in the market because um, it means that the market's evolving a little bit and everybody's paying attention to it. But I, I get the sense that it could uh, change a lot about the market and force people to start thinking about investing privately more than they already do on secondary exchanges uh, to, to see real gains in, in bigger, newer companies uh, than they did before. So how that will affect seed investing, not so obvious to me yet. How that will affect Series A, not so obvious to me yet. How it will affect C and beyond, a little, starting to be a little more com become a little more clear. Are you reading a lot about, about their investments from the Vision Fund as well? Yeah, well, I remember when he launched that. Um, Did you ever see the a, duck? Uh, no, I have not. No. You, you know, I'll send it to you. Uh, essentially, he was saying, okay. like, I had this idea that, you know, what affected humanity the most? And how could I help things affect humanity the most? And, you know, he built an investment thesis on what would be the most important portions of the journey of humanity. Um, and he decided to build a fund around that. Um, and what oh. seems to be uh, astute sometimes and, uh, you know, uber crazy to the others. It just doesn't make complete yeah. sense to me. Well, it's huge, and it does seem to align with what your stated goals are and aims, you know, with your fund. I remember reading about it, and um, I think he had some sort of public funding, and it was oversubscribed. <clears throat> it's like a hundred billion dollar fund, and there was like 122 or 132 billion in subscriptions. And yeah. Ayoshi Son, you know, himself yeah. is 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 uber rich. So it it was remarkable that the success of such an uh, endeavor. But I don't think there's ever been anything to compare it to in the same vein. So, so you know, as an outside observer to that, do you think that it'll ultimately pan out in a good way? for the venture market? I do think that you're right. It creates a, sustain, a more sustainable platform for the venture market. And you've got people with deep pockets who are supporting it. Presumably, they wouldn't have the same liquidity needs that occur in a crisis that others would, where funding gets pulled or gates go up and other things happen that impugn or harm or limit that market. So I do think, yeah, it's, <clears throat> it is an attempt to create some sort of sustainable mechanism for funding good ideas. Because I don't think, you know, the public markets are great for established companies um, or those that have a very clear business model and path and <clears throat> some established success. But yeah, I'm not sure. Certainly in the current iteration where we have such a political tint to the public markets, I don't know. It's, um, it seems better for there to be a more sustainable way with venture capital like this. I don't know. Well, so. You know, I almost wonder if we see, you know, if this is the beginning of the rise of, you know, a secondary markets just becoming more and more valuable. Yeah. Well, I absolutely think that, you know, we've made a strong push into some non-traded investments, things that are called alternatives in our world. But I do feel like given the way the markets have been trading, we're higher up in the capital stack. We have more protection with a lot of these alternative investments. They're just the valuations because they're not engaged or embroiled in these public auction markets 
where people are paying ridiculous prices for stocks or for investments generally, um, we're somewhat insulated from any, any corrections. So we've been looking at alternatives like that. And, you know, private equity and venture capital are in that space. No public trading. But it also means you have more sober-minded, theoretically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'll just stop being sober. You don't right. need to finish right. that. Right. Yeah, humanity affects us all. All right, I'll talk to you later. Okay, brother. Take care. All right, love you. Bye. Bye.